Good evening, everybody. Would you stand with us and worship our King this evening?
Since the earliest days of Fellowship's existence, we have made our position on abortion very clear. We have always believed that taking the life of an unborn child was and is wrong. An innocent baby's right to live should not be based on another's right to choose. We have strongly supported organizations who provide services and options for young women facing unplanned pregnancies. We have also preached from our pulpits at every opportunity the sanctity of human life from conception to death. Our position is not political, but biblical and ethical. We are not at war with those who disagree with us, but want to be a candle in the darkness. Nor do we condemn those who have experienced an abortion in the past. Fellowship's desire is that our congregations be places of refuge, of healing, and hope. The elders of Fellowship Bible Church feel that now is the time to speak into this situation, to reaffirm our position. When the Supreme Court ruling was made public, tempers on both sides of the debate were flaring. And we didn't want to bring such divisiveness into our services or within our church walls. Our agenda is not driven by the media or by the world, but by opportunities to fulfill our vision and mission and reflect the love of Christ to all. Our position is based on the scriptures that life is sacred and only God has the right to choose when life begins and ends. I am grateful to God that abortion will no longer be legal in many states, but it will still be legal in others. The debate will rage on. But as I am thankful for the Supreme Court's decision, my heart is heavy for the 60 million plus babies who were aborted since 1973 and that there is such a great divide in our country over this issue. Psalm 139 tells us that God forms us in our mother's womb and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I pray that in our country and world, mothers in the future will make the choice to let those innocent babies who are God's ultimate creation live. Let them live. Our mission here at Loving Choices is we're here to offer hope to girls that find themselves in crisis pregnancies. These girls come in here and they're hopeless and they don't know where to turn and we're, we're giving them hope. And that's probably the favorite, my favorite part is I love helping someone in crisis find hope in Jesus and find hope in um, their situation. We've had girls as young as 12 here and as old as 51 here. So we will service all ages. And it doesn't even have to be a crisis as in they're considering having an abortion. It can be financial crisis. It can be, I don't have insurance. I just don't know what to, where to turn. I'm new in the area. We just wanna be there to connect them with what they need. Loving Choices is offering hope, empowering families, and bringing life. We're here no matter where their circumstances are, what brought them here. Uh, we wanna love them where they're at. And that's the one thing that I train all my volunteers. You have to love them where they're at. Whatever situation they're in, you've got to love them there. And that's where we start. We hope to bring them on the other side to a place of hope and, and being able to flourish in what they're doing. But when they come in, we're going to meet them wherever they're at. No judgment here. One of the many things that, that makes the issue of abortion just 
so difficult and so painful is that it almost always involves at least two people in a vulnerable situation, mother and child. And, and we know that there are so many different stories uh, represented in this congregation and in our community. And so uh, we want to acknowledge that this topic will trigger so many different emotions in so many peop- different people's own experiences. We know that when we talk about the sanctity of life of the unborn, uh, that's going to trigger people who've miscarried a child. And that's going to bring up all kinds of pain and grief and loss. And it's going to bring up pain for victims of sexual assault. It's going to bring up pain for people uh, who went from the joy of a pregnancy to the incredibly difficult situations when that pregnancy termed life-threatening. Um, and, it, and it brings up all kinds of things and feelings uh, for, for women who find themselves facing the harsh realities of life and feeling alone in that. And one of the things that it is really tempting to do when we face a situation like this that feels so charged and, and yet has so many, uh, so many painful and hard emotions surrounding it, many people feel the pressure to choose between ethics and compassion. And something that is remarkable to me is we've been looking at the life of Jesus this summer, as we've been looking at how he responded to different situations, he never gave in to that choice. He, ne- he, he found a way to teach an amazing ethical life and maintain infinite compassion for people, whether or not they were responsible for putting themselves in the difficult situation they're in. His compassion was limitless, and at the same time, he held on to teaching, living, and modeling an incredible ethic that honored the Lord in everything. And so he then went from there to launching the kind of church that would both, in the first century, be the people who are rescuing abandoned children and would become a refuge for vulnerable women, both at the same time. And it's interesting to me that over and over again, in the scriptures, we see this this pairing that appears, and it's the widow and the orphan. Over and over again, an expression of our faith is caring for the widow and the orphan. And, And those were the vulnerable women and children of their culture's time. And I think we are still called to be that kind of community that loves vulnerable women and children in both relational and practical ways in every aspect of our lives. So we recognize the the complete image of God represented in every unborn child, in every fearful mother, and oftentimes in helpless fathers. And we want to be a community of love because we recognize that every single one of us, every person in this room and every person in our community has been devastatingly broken by the fall of humanity from God into sin. And yet the remarkable good news of the gospel is that every single human matters to God. And when these broken people that matter to God, come together under the blood of Jesus, healing and restoration starts to take place, and God gets the glory from that. So what we want to say is, wherever you are, whatever your story, whatever your background, whatever you've been walking through, whatever feelings you're feeling, we want to say from the bottom of our hearts, you are welcome at Fellowship Mosaic, and we want to walk alongside you as we pursue Jesus together, 
walking the Jesus way of holiness and the Jesus way of compassion, hand in hand, step by step together. So we want to welcome you. We're really, really glad you're here. My name is Nick, and I get to serve on the teaching team here at Mosaic. And uh, if you're new, if you're visiting for the first time, we really want to get to know you. We want to connect with you. And so there's a couple of ways to do that. Uh, one, you can text Mo New to the number on the screen, and you'll get followed up with this week with somebody who's going to reach out to you and help you get connected. Or if you're the kind of person who feels comfortable just doing the face-to-face right away, there's a welcome booth in the center of the foyer out there where I guarantee you the kindest, friendliest person you've ever met in your life, or at least in the last hour, is going to be ready to say hi and help you get connected. We want to help you get connected and belong and, and find out what it is to be a part of this faith family walking with Jesus. Hey, there's two other things I want to let you know that are going on. One of the fun things we get to do during summer is just play together. Um, There is, I mean, there's family is walking through heavy things, family is getting things done, and family is also just playing. And we're really excited to play together on July 20th. That's a Wednesday night at the Springdale Aquatic Center. So yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's it's a really, really good time. So we invite you to that on Wednesday night just to come play for a while together. Uh, All the info is available. I should have said this beginning. I'm going to try to say this every single time I have a microphone up here. If you ever wonder what's going on at Mosaic, why don't I know about that? What is the answer? Mosaic, nwa.org slash news. If it's happening, it's there. So if you ever want the details, if you ever feel like you don't know what's coming up, go check that out. You can find all the details there. Hey, the last thing uh, that I want to talk about, in line with the fact that we value the image of God in every single person, especially kids, we have an opportunity to help kids in our community um, who are going to be going back to school, believe it or not, really, really soon. (laughs) And so uh, one of the things we can do is we have a backpack drive. We partner with Samaritan Community Center, a fantastic ministry in our area, to fill kids back backpacks with what they need. And so here's what you can do. Um, in the foyer on July 18th, uh, you'll have the opportunity. We'll have some, some bins that you can donate, red pens, blue pens, and wide-ruled uh, composition notebooks in the bins so that we can help fulfill uh, the need of kids having what they need to go back to school and be prepared for that. So we want to invite you, Mosaic. Let's show love to people in a practical, tangible way by filling those bins up and helping kids go back to school well. We are so thrilled and excited to get to be united around the person of Jesus together, to come from our our broken backgrounds and our hurt places and our personal uh, wounds that we carry and discover something bigger than even our own personal story in the story of Jesus and what he's done for the world. And so we want to honor him and glorify him in all that we do tonight. So I invite you to stand with us as we continue to sing about him. Church, let's pray. God, we love you. We come before you. Lord, as a body of believers, surrendering to where you've called us, where you've placed us. Lord, may you give us your eyes and your ears and your mind, Father, to listen well, to speak wisely, Father. Help us focus on Jesus now, Holy Spirit. Help us focus our attention on the King who has saved us, on the King who is among us now, Emmanuel. May Jesus be the focus of our time, Lord. We love you, God. pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's worship him, church.
picture this moment with me. Christ shall come. church as we prepare our hearts for offering. We've been reading this prayer since January this year. So would you just take some time to really take in these words and what they mean? Let's read this together. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give can match your great gift to us, your Son, and your Spirit.
serve here on the worship team, and um, my husband Daniel and I uh, lead a community group as well, and so if you are a person and you need a safe place, please feel free to come talk to us, because we'd love to have you. Um, second, I'm going to open this Bible, and then would you hear from the word of the Lord with me? Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left 
with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And the people said, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kristen. Good evening, Mosaic family. How are you? Good. My name is Colin. That is loud. Y'all hear that? It's like a bell. And uh, I serve with our community small groups team as well as our teaching team. And uh, it's a joy to be with you tonight. We're uh, in a John series. We've done the I am statements. Jesus kind of moves through different seven statements of who he is. We moved through seven miracles, things Jesus did. And now we'll move to seven encounters tonight, the third out of seven. If you have a Bible, we'll start in John chapter seven. And uh, as we begin, I'd love for you to go ahead and think with me for a moment most embarrassing moment of your life. You don't have to say it out loud, but just go ahead and imagine it. You got caught doing something, something that just, if we were to stand up and pass the mic, little open mic night, you probably wouldn't want it shared. I'll tell you mine. Uh, I was in high school and I was at a party I wasn't supposed to be at. Ooh, and I lied to my parents about being at that party and they may find out from me telling you tonight that this happened. I tore my ACL for the third time, not one, not two, three, I tore it. Everything from a previous surgery, gone, kaput. And that actually wasn't even the most embarrassing moment. See, what happened was everybody, the Christian friends found out I was at the party and this guy's not really a follower of Jesus. And then the party kids were like, that guy's weird. He's torn his ACL three times and he did it at our party. Bummer, get him out of here. So I'm walking after an ACL surgery, just in the pit, head down, rainy day, Rogers High School, 2009, coming in on crutches into the auditorium. Everybody's there for lunch, and I slip, and another, oh, it was so bad, four, right? Like, so painful, and it was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life as everyone saw me cry. I had to call my mom. Thanks for listening. This is my story. <laughs> Now we can be silly and share funny stories like that, but there are absolutely things within every human heart in this room tonight that we do not want revealed, correct? And here's the beauty of the story, this woman who's caught. I love Nick, we were praying as a team for our time together in the back. He said, a woman who knows the experience of being both the villain and the victim. And that I'm going to invite you tonight to take that same posture. As we, uh, if you're new here, one of our primary goals, every single thing we do at Mosaic, Fellowship Mosaic, is driven from this heart, that we want to produce and release spiritual leaders who know and express the authentic Christ, the risen, living King Jesus and his kingdom. Um, so you have a seat in this room, which means by default tonight, you have signed up to be trained, equipped, and cared for as a spiritual leader, a maturing disciple with a ministry focus in this congregation. And we need you. And, and every single Saturday when we come together, we kind of have three hopes for us as we dive into these texts. It's not that you just come to church and hear great teaching, although that'd be great. It's not that you just have a great worship experience. Our hope is that every time you come into this room, you encounter Christ, the living act of Jesus, whose spirit is dwelling those who are following him in this room tonight, that you would encounter him next, that you, we'd repent and we'd actually turn from evil both within and around us, as Nick talked about so well earlier. And then lastly, that we'd leave this place ready to love God and neighbor well this next week. 
So that's, that's why I hope you're here tonight, is to become a maturing disciple, growing in the way of Jesus, so that we can know him more intimately and express him more boldly where we live, work, and play. And, and tonight in our text, I, I'd love it to, to point three movements, because we're going to see Jesus come into an encounter with a couple of religious hypocrites, with a woman caught in the very act of sleeping with somebody who is not her spouse, and a bunch of people who are just hanging out trying to hear Jesus' teaching. <laughs> and I would love to walk through three movements for our time tonight. One is I'm gonna invite you to the art and science of textual criticism. And you're like, what is that? Well, don't worry, you'll find out. But um, the earliest manuscripts, as we'll see in this passage, do not have this story. So I feel I'd be irresponsible just to brush over that piece. I think we actually can do some good as maturing disciples to learn a little bit more about our Bibles tonight. Don't you agree? Our second movement is we're gonna take the posture of the Pharisees, that we're actually gonna put ourselves in their shoes, identify somebody we just wish we could throw a stone at and turn. And lastly, we're gonna take the posture of the woman because every single one of us knows that place and that space where shame and sin is just wrecking us. And the beauty is that Jesus the very Jesus who encounters them. I love, Matt Natzel said this a few weeks ago. The Jesus that encounters every single person in this gospel is the same Jesus who desires to encounter you tonight. And so before we dive into the passage, could we pray together for a moment? Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Mighty God, everything you do is for your glory and our good. So I ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we could see what you're doing in our life tonight. Lord, we, uh, we can't even begin to comprehend the grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy that you are pouring out on us right now. But we're grateful for it. And as we gather tonight around your name, would you fill our hearts, minds, and souls and transform us to make us more like you? In your beautiful name, we gather and pray. Amen. John chapter seven, if you have a Bible, it'll be on the screen as well. Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Sounds familiar. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? So Jesus has just finished up a pretty significant teaching and claim, and the Pharisees don't like it. Uh, we have this man who was blind, now he's healed, and all these arguments we've already studied in our John series, but to give some of the context of what Jesus is in tonight, first, notice that this is a, this is a culture that is divided. Um, th there is a lot of disagreement over who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to in the world. Some are worshiping him, following him as the Messiah, the chosen one. Other ones have no appreciation for his teaching. This, this prophet out of Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And then there's others who are so far extreme that they're ready to, to get rid of him for good. But I think it's important that you see tonight, Jesus is no stranger to a culture that is divided. He actually is, is in the midst of a divided culture and he brings good news to it. And then we reach these little brackets. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have 753, what we're about to read, and eight through 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, uh, John 21, some in Luke 21, others in Luke 24. 
And so you might have one of three responses right now. One, with these little brackets, you might think like, oh, that's cool, good to know. Or at least manuscripts don't have it. Keep reading. Well, that's okay. Another one might be, that's weird. Like, that's kind of weird that that's there. Why is that there? Can I trust? How do I know what is God's word versus what's not God's word? And you start, like, maybe a skeptic like me, you start asking hard questions of, like, how did that get there? Who wrote it if not John? And I know there's some of you in the room tonight who are like, I wrote a doctoral level paper on this passage, so don't screw it up, Jackson, right? Raise your hand if that's you. No, just kidding, you don't have to. Regardless of your response, what you need to see is that as a spiritual leader, a maturing disciple, every word in scripture matters, including the ones in brackets. And so what I'd love to do is enter into our first movement of the text tonight, which is to begin to look at the art and science of textual criticism. So you can leave tonight and you ask your kids, like, what did you learn? And they'll be like, Jesus. And like, what did you learn? It's like, I'm a textual critic now. Um, Before we get into it, this is, I stole it from Robert Cup, one of our favorite theologians around here. And this is how we we believe, this is our doctrine of, of how we have the inspired word of God. We have a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The scriptures also refer to Jesus as the living word who has existed before all things, and he reveals himself in and through creation, as well as revealing himself to human authors, to to prophets in the Old Testament, and now into the New Testament to disciples. And he reveals himself and he inspires. That word inspires is the word we get for God breathes into it. And so it's very important to understand here that God is breathing into these human authors the very words that he wants written that the words, the original words that these human authors write, God is revealing and inspiring so that these authors can record it. They can write it down. This is the term autograph. That this would be an original copy. So God is breathing or inspiring this and, and they're writing it down. And then the Holy Spirit is inspiring it in such a way that we now have a copy, a, the living word is spoken, the written word. And from the written word, it's, it's then extended. They make copies of it. These are known as manuscripts. So we have autographs, original, manuscripts, later writings of copies to bless humanity with with God's word. And this is good. And, And what textual criticism does is it takes those autographs, original copies, which we don't have, and it begins to look at the copies, all the different manuscripts, to piece together what was the original. So for the Gospel of John, for example, We don't have the original autograph, but what we have are all these manuscripts and copies that were written. And what would begin to happen is if, let's say, I write a note that says, I love my wife so much, she is the best, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, heart, hashtag, she cute. And then I passed it around to a few people, and you wrote, I love my wife, exclamation point, exclamation point, hashtag, she cute, heart. And, And what began to happen is these copies would have differences in them, variations, correct? And so what textual critics would begin to do, this is really a science, is they would begin to look at, not just with the Bible, but with several ancient texts, they would begin to look at these manuscripts and uh, all the copies. And so what we have is now manuscript evidence. And so uh, this isn't just the Bible. They do this with uh, many ancient texts. Caesar has writings that they've done it with, um, where Caesar would write something and it would be posted or it would be this autograph from Caesar himself. And then there would be copies that were made And over years, historians and textual scholars have found these different copies and they compare. And it's been about thousands of years of a process. And with Caesar's accuracy, we're not entirely sure how accurate they are to his original writing. So we kind of have to guess. 
Next uh, would be like Aristotle and his teaching. And, and you'd have all these great philosophy lectures that then he would write and would be passed along to scribes and they'd copy. And again, it's about 1400 years and we're not entirely sure exactly what was the words of Aristotle and what wasn't. But then you have things like Homer's Iliad. Uh, you have this great story written by Homer early, early centuries and they would have copies and they would be able to take those copies and, and compare them and say, okay, yeah, this, this is what Homer was trying to get across. And there's the evidence of so over 643 copies to piece together the original. Within the scriptures, we have 5,748 copies man, that we can compare and contrast and look at what's different and what's not. And it is 99.5% accurate. Most of the variations that exist are little tweaks between like nouns and verbs. So one copy of a, a verse in a gospel might say, Jesus and his disciples went into the synagogue and he taught. Whereas another manuscript might say, they went into a synagogue and he taught. It, that it's, it's, it doesn't change doctrinal, it doesn't change truth. It just, it's a copy that, that got off. And so what textual scholars do and critics do is they look at them and say, this is what we believe the autograph, the original copy would say which is how we have translations and transmissions and all this beautiful things. But the largest areas of variation within the New Testament Bible are Mark chapter 16 and the passage we have tonight. That the earliest manuscripts did not include them. Um, and I could geek out on this for the rest of the night, but I won't because I got to get to the text. But Nick and I are actually sitting down this week to launch a new podcast series called Fellowship Mosaic Footnotes where we're going to just be able to dive into some of the things we wish we had time to dive into on this stage. Uh, we're actually gonna sit in a room over in the offices and just hash it out and it's gonna be beautiful. So I'd encourage you, if you wanna know more about this or, or really wanna articulate it or even join the conversation, um, please give that a listen later this week. But, but in summary, just to give you an appetizer, in the earliest copies of John that we have, this passage in John chapter eight of the woman caught in adultery is not there. Uh, not only that, it's, it's even shown up in the Gospel of Luke, as you saw in those brackets. Um, some have said, even just looking at the writing style, that Luke may have been the author of this. But regardless of who you think the author is, this text was added later to John's Gospel. That's the baseline point. And so it leaves us with some questions. Where did it come from? Um, some think this might have been oral tradition. So where John had written his Gospel already and they're making copies, there was uh, John even says that there are things written in this gospel, which Jesus did, which are not recorded here. And so this would have been oral tradition of a, something that actually took place in Jesus's ministry and life and later on was added to the scripture. Um, others think that it was preserved in other texts outside of the gospel, ancient text, and later was added to John. Um, some think that it should just be in the footnotes and not a part of scripture, not inspired as the word of God. But uh, who wrote it and where did it come from? No one really knows. It's this kind of floating mystery text that we have in front of us tonight. But here's what we do know. One, God's word is good and it's written for your good, amen? Two, welcome to the, the art of textual criticism. And it is beautiful and a masterful work and it gets kind of messy sometimes. Three, while there's great debate over whether or not this story belongs in John's gospel, theologians have a lot of different opinions across a very wide spectrum. This story does not change anything about the Christian teaching or doctrine of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in the world. This is not a gospel issue. And fourth, uh, while the earliest manuscripts do not include this verse, 
it's very clearly in line with a genuine historical representation of how Jesus interacted with the, the religious leaders of his day and of a woman caught in sin. So I love how uh, Leon Morris puts it. You're like, you could have just said this an hour ago, Colin. He says this, that the textual evidence makes it almost impossible to hold that this section, what we're about to read, is an authentic part of the gospel of John. John didn't write it. But if we cannot feel that this is a part of John's gospel, we can feel that the story is true to the character of Jesus. Throughout history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic and it rings true. So while some will argue that this is just to be left alone, it's God's word, he brought it to us, let's read it. And while others have opinions about, we probably need to have some nuance about how we read this. Regardless of where you find yourself on that spectrum, we have this story in our Bibles tonight and it rings true to something, a spiritual principle that is true to who Jesus is and what he wants to do as we encounter him. See, this story, it points to the key spiritual truth and principle that it's consistent with the good news of Jesus Christ, that it emphasizes his justice in a very unjust situation, his compassion and mercy in a very difficult conflict and an invitation to broken people in a broken world. And doesn't that just sound like Jesus? And so, uh, welcome to the, the conversation of textual criticism. I hope you'll join us for more as we deep dive later this week. But without further ado, let's jump in to John chapter eight, verse one. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So this is, again, consistent within the gospels. This is a regular day in the life of Jesus that he is spending his evenings and early mornings with the Father in the Mount of Olives, escaping from the busyness of Jerusalem to be in the presence with his Father, praying and, and, and on behalf of his disciples and for the good work. And then he's going out and doing public ministry, healing, teaching, calling people to follow him, to become disciples. And he would regularly go to the synagogue. This is the center of town. Uh, in Jerusalem, this is Hoppin. So this is, uh, if, if we could put a little fling on it, I'm in Bentonville, sorry for if you're not in Bentonville, but it's like first Friday on the Bentonville Square. It's a party, it, it's the place to be. And then you have the most awkward interruption in a teaching. Like I could not imagine what would happen if this took place in the room tonight. Please don't do it. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, snarkily, this is, this is disrespectful. Hey, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? See, the Pharisees, last we saw in the last passage, they're ready to find a good reason to get rid of this Jesus. They're kind of done with his claims to Messiah and his miracles. And so they go out of their way to bring this woman caught in the act. Um, I, I don't know about you, but where people might be committing adultery, I'm not usually going and looking for them. But the Pharisees took that posture. that They find this woman caught in the act and notice the woman's there, but the person who is also in the act is not. So already we actually have a difference within. If you were to go back to the text that the Pharisees are quoting, they're misrepresenting what God instilled because it would have been both parties present. It would have been a fair opportunity in, in hearing. 
and they bring her to the feet of Jesus during his teaching. Like he is teaching the goodness and the mercy of God and they're like, look what we got. And they bring her right to the middle. And this woman caught in the act, notice that they don't bring the man, but, but you, could you imagine her shame and embarrassment? Like, we don't know how much time she had to get ready or to like get perked up or like, did she even get to like get dressed? But they're dragging this woman out to the middle of Bentonville Square at the synagogue in front of this group of people. She is simultaneously a villain. She's a, I mean, she has caused hurtful, wrong damage to her community. And some of us know the pain of walking through an adulterous relationship. Some of us, we can kind of understand why the Pharisees are there. Some of us have been the adulterous woman. And the, the overwhelming fear and the shame that she must be feeling in this moment. She's simultaneously a villain wrecking the relationships of her community, yet also a victim of abuse and public shame that, that she's coming to the public square here to be killed. And this, the Pharisees pose a question. Jesus, what do you say? And look what he says. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for what? Accusing him. Do they have any concern with keeping the law here? Do they have any concern with being righteous and holy and in devotion to God? No. They have what Ezekiel refers to as a heart of stone. It's cold, it is hard, it is bitter, and it is willing to dehumanize and take the life of another human out of an attempt to dethrone the king. But Jesus, notice this conflict resolution. I don't know, the next time you're in an argument with like a loved one or a relationship or, or a spouse, try it and let me know how it goes. Jesus bends down and starts to write on the ground with his finger. I mean, just imagine, woman there, Jesus is teaching, this all happens, and he just, boop. And there's a lot of theories about what Jesus wrote in the ground, and we don't know. Beckham, my oldest son, thinks it was a dinosaur. He thinks it's kind of fun that Jesus would draw a dinosaur. One could be that the last time I mean, think of another time in scripture where we have dust and shame and nakedness. Genesis chapter three, right? We have this God who formed man out of the dust, breathed life into them, and then they're naked, ashamed, and afraid. Could it be that that's what Jesus was thinking? We don't know, but what we do know is that the Pharisees were coming to accuse and to trap him, that, that this, is, this is the people who've been instilled with the spiritual care and concern over the community of God's people, and here they are bringing him in to test the Messiah and potentially kill a woman. And so they put a dilemma on Jesus. See, because if he accepts to stone the woman, well, then he is not the gracious, loving Messiah that, that he's claiming to be, and that everyone thinks he is, and this also could really upset the Roman officials and give us reason to kill him. Look, he's a violent leader. He's killing women in the street. So on one side, they're trying to get Jesus to prove, hey, follow the law and don't be gracious. But if he does not stone her, then he would be admitting in their eyes that, that God's law, Jesus is saying God's law is not good. And therefore it would be a claim of someone who can't be God if you're claiming your very law is not good. So the Pharisees, 
are asking Jesus to take the place as judge and it reveals their motives, their heart. The heart of stone, it's this idea in scripture that at the center of your desire and your personal thoughts and actions, it is dead and it is gross and it is bitter. There's no desire or longing to submit to or follow Jesus in that place. And you're angry and causing harm and damage to the world around you. I wonder if we have a heart of stone in our culture. (laughs) I wonder if there's any stones getting thrown around on social media posts lately. I wonder if there's someone in this room that's like, man, I'd throw a stone if I could. I'd love to invite you tonight, first to the shoes of the Pharisees, of, of what is our Pharisaical struggle? What sins are we willing to throw stones at? Who is it, fill in the blank, I do not have mercy for? I have no room for grace for. I'd encourage you, a a good practice with this story would be to go back and retell it, but instead of the Pharisees, put your name. And then I'd love to put you to put somebody that you wish would just get the judgment and condemnation they deserve. Maybe a person of a different sexual orientation. Maybe a person in a different political party. We're just like, oh my gosh, yes. Maybe it's somebody who doesn't look like you, somebody who doesn't vote like you, somebody who doesn't talk like you. But we have to admit, we have this pharisaical tendency within our hearts to wanna cast condemnation on sinners in our community. And you want mercy for your sins, but we don't want mercy for them. And I love Jesus responds with perfect justice and compassion. And he gives them an invitation. He gives them an invitation to to confess, an invitation to turn to him. That even the religious hypocrite, he gives that opportunity and puts the dilemma back on their shoulders as he says that if you all stone this woman, <laughs> then you're claiming that you have not sinned because in Jesus' understanding, if you have lust, you're an adulterer. If you have anger and contempt, you're a murderer. See, Jesus' primary concern is not necessarily with the actions or behavior modification. He wants to change the very heart. And Jesus invites them to confess, to repent, to turn from the evil within them and around them and invites in his kindness to bring to repentance. That it's the kindness of God that that leads to repentance, not the public stoning of a woman at the synagogue. So he's bringing the good news both to the pharisaical religious hypocrite and to the woman who's committed adultery. And it reveals a very important feature that is true all across the gospels. That Jesus regularly struggles, not with the beggars, not with the sick, not with the sick, not with the sexually immoral. It's with the religious folk. I love how Preston Prinkle says it. He says that as I read the gospels, I see people drawing near to Jesus. All kinds of people, broken people, sinful people, marginalized people, people who are clean and unclean, pure and impure. Some are befriended, others comforted, but all of them loved. And the people who are most repelled by Jesus are the religious hypocrites. 
those who claim to know and love and walk with God, yet their actions, their behaviors, their hearts are very, very far from him. Back to our practice from earlier. Who who was it that you want to throw a stone at? Who is it in our culture that, that you just, you are struggling to extend forgiveness or love to? Jesus' invitation to you tonight is to drop that stone. To not take the posture of the villain and to release it. See, because if the gospel is not the good news for homosexual, the the religious right and the religious left, uh, the, the people who think differently, walk differently, talk differently, who identify differently. If the gospel, if the good news of Jesus is not the good news for them, that's not the good news of Jesus, friend. Because the good news of Jesus is that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, that he came not for the healthy who who need a doctor, but, but for the sick, that Jesus has come to not call the righteous, but the unrighteous. And he gives the Pharisees an opportunity to confess and turn and to come to him who can give them new life. So we've become scholars, we're textual critics, we've become Pharisees, we, we know what it's like to want to throw stones and we need to let those go. Let's take the posture of the woman, our third movement. John 8, 9, at this, those who heard began to go away and one at a time, the oldest ones first until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I want you to imagine a sin in your life that you would absolutely hate to have brought to the public eye. It doesn't just have to be sexual sin. This can be a sin in anything that you know This is evil and wrong. And oh, I would hate for others to find out about it. And here's the reality that God has made all of us as as image bearers. We are sexual beings, which is really good. (laughs) But sin has made every single one of us in some way, shape or form a sexual struggler who are in need of God's grace. And in the same way that sin has warped our view our practices, our habits, and every sense of our lives, our bodies, our desires, our minds, our thoughts, our motivations are broken. So is our sexuality. That's how the aspect of our sin is so prevalent and far-reaching. And it's actually in that broken, guilty, isolated, shameful place that Jesus graciously exposes light and truth. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't accuse her, he brings a question. I love, if you were to do an overview of the scriptures of when we have people who are broken and struggling, it is the enemy who brings accusation and chaos and confusion. And it is the triune God who brings questions and restoration. Adam and Eve Sin, hiding, naked, afraid, shame. And God comes to them and he says, where are you? Who told you that? 
and he closed them. A woman named Hagar on the run in the desert and a woman who knows brokenness well and God asks her, where, where have you come from and where are you going? And restores her. Jacob, a man in identity crisis, doesn't even know who he is and God comes to him and he asks, well, remind me, what is your name? And he restores him. Elijah, a prophet, hiding in a cave when he should have been out celebrating with God's people. He's in shame and hiding and God comes to him and he says, what are you doing here? And he restores him. See, God brings questions and restoration in our brokenness. The enemy brings accusation and destruction. And to an adulterer who is ruining her life and the lives of others around her, what questions does he ask? Hey, where are they? Those who had the stones that brought you here, where are they? It's this connection that, that the living word, God himself is having this connection with this woman. And then he asked the second question. Did they not condemn you? You did wrong and they are condemning you. You are getting what you deserve. Did, did they not condemn you? And then he extends grace. Unmerited favor, no condemnation for her. But notice, it, it's not just he extends grace that she's forgiven. He also invites her to a new life. To go and leave your life of sin. See, I think oftentimes we can cling so much so to give me grace, give me grace, give me grace, give me grace that we miss out on the opportunity to join him in new life. Paul will go on to write later in the New Testament that do we nullify the grace of God? Do we receive the grace of God so we could keep on sinning? Or, or is it that a dead person who's been raised to life should jump back in the grave? No, friend, you have received God's grace in your sin, in your shame, he has called you clean and spotless and invites you now to live from that posture and that identity. And that is the Christian life, that we receive his grace and we walk in the new life that he invites us to, to leave the life of sin and fear and isolation and hiding and to step into an encounter with Jesus for new life. Dr. Jay Stringer, he's a therapist and minister. He specializes in seeing uh, victims of, of sexual brokenness. Um, and he desires on both sides of that to see healing and restoration. He says this, that the use of pornography, pursuing extramarital affairs and buying sex are both shaped and predicted by the parts of a person's past that remain unaddressed. There's something deep within the heart of every sexual broken behavior that is unaddressed. And if you want to find freedom, it will come to the extent which you can accept that there are significant stories shaping your life. Furthermore, the gospel is God's story and invitation to be restored. It is God's invitation to turn and face our wounds and to find the one who chooses not to be immune or offended by our pain, but who instead becomes so acquainted with our pain that he offers his splayed and broken body for our forgiveness and our flourishing. Jesus' desire is not just behavior modification, it is heart transformation. There's a reason the Shema, the Old Testament thing that every single little Jewish boy and girl quoted three times a day, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That is from 
within, when you clean the inside of the cup, Jesus says, the outside will be clean. But we have a tendency to receive God's grace and then to try to have some gospels of sin management. Um, that, that we want to, to receive God's grace and then we're gonna take it on ourselves to clean ourselves up. And then we do good for a little while and then we fall back down. And we do, we get enough energy. And, and what Dr. Stringer is pointing to is it's not sin management or lust management that we need. It's, it's the new life. It's actually living out in the new life that we receive and it's addressing the things underneath. This is why I love the ministry of CR. That it gives you a space and a place to say, I am broken and I am messed up, but I am dependent on someone who isn't. And you begin to make these choices day by day where it's not about whether or not I, I, I fell or fall, it's about the person I'm becoming. And you begin to work through not just the behaviors, you begin to adjust the thoughts and the desires within you that are leading to those behaviors. What we don't need is just to, to turn from our sin and, and to something else. We turn from our sin into someone who brings healing in that place. And then John picks back up here now from the word of the Lord. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So uh, what, what darkness are you walking in in this portion of your spiritual journey? And are you willing to bring it to God and experience his grace and forgiveness? And are you willing to, to share it with others before it outs you? I mean, sin will always find a way. It is never hidden for long. It will come out and, and it will come out in such a way that others will see the effects before you even can. And see, the story in John reinforces the truth that Jesus is just. We have a good, just savior. But he's not just just with an iron rod. He's compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he invites broken people in a broken world to be made whole, to be restored, and to walk in the newness of life. And so in, in response to this truth, I'd love to give us three things. That would be true for our time together tonight, but I hope would be true for you on the day by day, that Jesus invites broken people like us to a new life marked by first, grace and forgiveness. That we receive his grace and forgiveness so that we then can extend it to others who have wronged and hurted us or, or have harmed us. That continually, everything we do, grace upon grace, that this is the posture of a follower of Jesus. It's not clenched fist ready to throw a stone. It's open-handed, ready to say, Lord, what do you have for me today? So I can extend it to others. Next, it's a life that's marked by confession and repentance. And sometimes we think of those only in the negative. Um, by the way, when we sing songs that are true about God, that is a form of confession. And when we bring out the things within us, when we confess, we bring to light those things within us that are in the dark. That is a confession. And we turn from those not just away from sin to, to an angry God who's ready to clench fists. No, we, we turn to those to a loving God who's ready to embrace us in his arms. 
And lastly, that, that we live a life of commitment and holiness, that together as followers of Jesus, we embrace our identity in this new life and we live it out and we encourage each other and we build each other up. And by the way, all three of these are not just you alone with Jesus opportunities. These are communal experiences within the family of God. And right now tonight, they're in the foyer in the middle, that, that little booth in the middle, there's a very new small group forming. For anyone who is new or anybody who feels disconnected and is just looking to plug back in. Like tonight, you can find people to, to do these with. As Kristen shared so well in the reading earlier, come, come talk. But what I'd love to do as we close is to spend some time in what we call a sailor. That is just a chance to respond to God. And uh, our prayer team will be available on the sides throughout this time if you need someone to pray with you. And uh, there's gonna be a scripture on the screen and I would just ask you, would you just quiet your heart and just listen to what God is teaching you in this moment? And then we'll respond in song. Would you hear now with me from the word of the Lord?
temptation comes my way And when I cannot stand or fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay When I cannot stand or fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay If you grabbed your communion on the way in, would you take it now? If you'll take the bread and the cup. If you'll just hold it. And I just want you to hear these words, that this is the body of Christ broken for you. Would you take this and eat it? We'll take the juice. This is the blood of Christ spilled and poured out for you, covering all your sins. Would you take it and drink? Amen. Well, church, we're grateful for a great night together. It was a great time worshiping together and praising the Lord. Uh, if you need prayer, we will have the prayer team down front or on the sides. Uh, come find us. We'd love to pray for you. If you're new here or you just need some more information, come find some of our pastors out in the lobby. And let's prepare our hearts to go as we say our liturgy. Let's go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the people said, thanks be to God. We'll see you next week, church.